At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Lease the 2024 RX 350 Premium All-Wheel Drive for $528 a month for 36 months with $49.99 due at signing. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease offer and pricing details. Not all customers will qualify. Offer in the Lexus Eastern area and it's April 1st, 2024. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled to have with me today a returning guest. I have with me Dr. Jimmy Turner, who uh, frequent listeners may remember was on the show in 2020. Jimmy is an academic anesthesiologist at Wake Forest in North Carolina, and he's a certified coach for physicians. He's also the founder of the Physician Philosopher blog and podcast. You may know him from that. In addition to this, and very excitingly, he is the author of a book that just came out, and if you're not listening to this right when this is released, it came out in July of 2022. The name of the book is Determined, How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System. Jimmy's passion is teaching doctors how to master their money and mindset so that they can create a life they love. And he goes through that in detail in this book, and he highlights that in his books and podcasts as well as his coaching that he does. So, Jimmy, really thrilled to have you here. Welcome back to the show. I'm excited to talk to you about your book. Yeah, thanks so much, Jed. I couldn't be more excited to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Well, you know, tell us a little bit. Uh, obviously, you were on the show in 2020. Uh, folks may or may not have heard that episode. So talk just a little about kind of what you do in general and then, you know, anything that particularly other than, of course, writing the book, which we'll get to that you've been up to over the past couple of years since we last talked. Yeah, you know, it's actually a bit of a, you know, business journey in addition to a personal journey. So, you know, I, I started out as um, obviously an academic anesthesiologist and then started my, my blog like six months after my fellowship in regional anesthesia was over. And it was pretty much strictly on personal finance in the beginning. Uh, so, you know, that's what I was, I was predominantly focused on. And, uh, you know, my tagline on my website for, for a while was, you know, fighting uh, burnout with financial independence. And uh, as hilariously as life would have it, the irony uh, is not lost on me. I ended up burning out myself uh, and found out pretty quickly that you know money wasn't uh, wasn't the answer. And so I, I think that a lot of doctors turn to the financial freedom because it's very measurable, and they're like, "Well, you know, I feel stuck or trapped." And finances would be the easy reason. I mean, there's a reason why there's a you know there's Facebook groups with a hundred thousand doctors in it trying to learn about side gigs. And so yeah, I doubled down and uh, tried to grow my business, and I did, and it was, it was successful, and uh, it didn't fix my burnout. And so uh, you know, I started taking the journey into you know figuring that stuff out and figuring out what caused my burnout and how I could solve that. And you know, taking that journey through that myself, I found coaching, uh, and then I, I kind of wrapped my head around exactly what the phenomenon is that's going on in medicine. Um, and so yeah, that, I took that journey myself and then ended up writing this book as, as a part of that after coaching hundreds of docs, you know, that are burned out too, uh, and figured out exactly what people need and what the problems are in medicine that are systemically and systematically broken that lead to this, this phenomenon that is now an epidemic in medicine. So, 
I'm super excited to talk about that on the show, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I ironically went through burnout myself and that's, that's how I ended up writing a, bur a burnout book, if you will. Yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Jimmy. And, you know, I should say not only congratulations on the book, but I believe in its first few weeks out, it's been at the top. Uh, it's been number one in several Amazon categories, uh, you know, that that really has shown that there is a um, there is a need and a desire for this kind of information. So I think you really um, have, have put this out at a great time. Um, I'm sure it was a huge undertaking uh, and and uh, can't imagine uh, how much work it must have been to write it as well as get it published, it, it, of course, while practicing uh, full time. Talk a little bit about the process of writing a book. You know, how, you know, you told us how it came about and sort of the concept. But, you know, when did you do it? How long did it take? How did you find a publisher? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, in writing a book, um, yeah, I, I mean, I can think about several th different things to talk about on this one. But um, yeah, so a lot of people have an idea. Um, and then they start with the, you know, the weeds They're like, oh, you know, like, how do I do this? How do I write this book? And really, I'd, I'd encourage you to do the opposite, right? So start, start with a very big picture. And so that's what I did. I started with, okay, what, what is this book? And who am I trying to help? Right. Because this book could have gone two very different directions. And in fact, there's probably going to be a second book because of that. So, you know, in this book, I focused on, uh, you know, basically what's systemically or systematically broken in medicine, how that impacts individual doctors. And the second half of the book is helping doctors figure out what they can do until that system is fixed. Because I think it is a, you know, a both and situation. And so I saw, you know, I solved that problem up front. Who am I trying to help? Well, in this case, it's the individual doctor. Right. I very easily could have said, you know, actually, my, my goal, my focus is, is fixing the system. And focusing on systematic solutions. And so you need to figure out early on what you're trying to do in terms of who you're trying to help, what problem you're trying to help them solve. And then once you do that, um, you know, the process of writing an outline for how you might help them get from A to Z, filling in those details. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty about what you're talking about, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting, right? So the book that I wrote, 60,000 words, I'd, I'd say the average book in the nonfiction space is somewhere between 40 and 50,000 words. Um, and so, yeah, it's just ended up being what it happened to come out to. And as I was getting done with this book, I started looking into all of the options that you mentioned, right? So self-publishing, which is what I did with my, my first book on personal finance. I looked into getting a literary agent and, you know, have, having them basically find a publisher for me. But the more I started learning about that process, the more and more I was kind of dissuaded from going, going through that, you know, more traditional process. You know, I, I didn't really want to get published by Penguin or Random House or, you know, these other big publishers, because it turns out that you would, A, have to sell your rights to the book. And B, even though they help you edit and write the book, uh, once you get done with it, they still expect you pretty much to promote the book. And so I already have an audience to some extent. You know, I've got eight or 10,000 people on an email list and, you know, my, my blog and my podcast already exist. And so I was like, well, you know, if they're not going to really help me with the promotion aspect of this and I'm going to be doing that on my own, you know, I, I don't really want to go that route. And so I found this company um, called Scribe. And so they happen to be a company that's kind of in the middle of those two options. So Scribe basically, you know, they used to work in the traditional publishing space. You pay them, you know, a fee up front. They help you with the, the editing, the book cover, you know, writing the little blurb on the, on the back. You know, they kind of do all the, all the back end stuff on a book, make it look really professional. But then you own 100% of the rights to the book after the fact. So it's not self-publishing. It's not traditional publishing. There are options in the middle. I happen to choose a company called Scribe to help me do that. And, you know, going back through it, I, I would do it that way again. Uh, the next book I write will certainly be, you know, in that sort of uh, fashion because it's just, you know, the perfect mix of between the two. It is a little more expensive uh, doing it that option up front, 
But on the back end, you still own the rights to your book, which you worked really hard on, you know, creating those ideas and, and writing the book and editing the book. And so I, that was really appealing to me. So that's the process that I ended up using for this specific book. That's great. I, you know, I had no idea that that existed. And is that just for nonfiction or do they do fiction and nonfiction? How does, how does Scribe work? Yeah, so they, they, do, uh, they do both. Yep, absolutely do both. Um, and so, you know, and, and it's interesting because um, I didn't know this at the time because I love to write. I'm a content producer, so I love writing. I love podcasting. I love just content creation. And so I never would have thought about doing this. But for people out there that are really busy doctors, and you're like, you know, I've got this great idea for a book. And I can walk you through it A to Z. It's my content expertise, whether it's in medicine or outside of it. They will actually ghostwrite a book for you. And so what, what they do is they basically interview you over you know, several hours, I imagine. Uh, and then after that interview, they take you know, the content and the ideas that you've put in front of them, and then they write the book for you. And then they send it to you. You get to edit it and say, no, this isn't really in my voice, or I want to change this, this one thing in chapter three. And so if you're a busy doctor... That's obviously a highly appealing thing. If you have an idea you want to put out in the world, but you don't feel like you have the time to write a book. So they also offer that. So there's, you know, nowadays there's everything from doing everything yourself from self-publishing to getting a literary agent. And the other thing with traditional publishing, it takes years. So you find a literary agent, it might, might be two or three years. And I was writing a book about burnout that was necessary and needed today. So I wasn't willing to wait three years to get this book out. But anyway, there's basically, you know, every shade of gray in between that, if you will, from, you know, writing yourself and having them go through the process or even ghost writing it for you, which is, I find that's pretty cool. I didn't even know that existed until I went through this process myself, but I didn't ghost write, ghost write my book to be clear. I wrote yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you wrote yours, but, but fascinating that that's uh, even an option. I agree with you. All right. So let's talk about the book itself. Um, yeah, it's really well done. I want to, uh, you know, we'll talk about the specifics, but I'll, I'll say it's for folks who read it, they'll know, you know, it's clearly you really share a lot of personal stories and you get very personal in it, which I think makes it much more compelling um, than it would have been without it. Was that a challenge? Uh, you know, did you think hard about that? Was it obvious from the get go you were willing to do that? I mean, you know, just you're essentially sharing your personal stuff with who knows, right? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions you know, of people. Um, was that a tough decision or no? Yeah. So the answer is no, um, it was not hard. Uh, and, the, and the reason why is because uh, for anybody that knows me, uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve. My, you know, my superpower, if I have one is honesty and transparency uh, to a fault. Um, and so, you know, it's um, it, that, that piece of it wasn't hard for me because, you know, yeah, I, I've had struggles. I've had professional struggles despite being quite successful in my, in my academic anesthesia career. You know, I've had personal struggles with depression and anxiety and I think there's a huge stigma around that. And, and I think anybody looking at my life from the outside, you know, and see my, my professional success, and I'm married to a, a saint of a human being. I've got three kids. I'm, you know, personally successful too. I look at that at a curated social media experience and say, how, wow, look at, you know, what a great life. And I don't want people to feel like that's real life because it's not. And so, um, you know, I, I'm very much uh, transparent because I want to destigmatize a lot of things. And, and this, this road to, wherever we're going in life, isn't a, you know, a straight arrow from the left, you know, bottom left to the top, right. Uh, you know, it's got definitely got some ups and downs and turns. And, and so that's, that's how my life has gone as well. So, you know, I, I, for me, that wasn't a big challenge, but that's because I'm extremely transparent pretty much everywhere. Oh, great. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. I think I couldn't agree with you more that sharing those kind of stories, especially someone who's successful sharing that, Hey, you know, it doesn't all look like peaches and cream the way it might on Instagram, you know, that's so important for everyone, especially our young trainees to see and realize that, you know, when they're struggling, they're not alone. We all struggled along the way and still do. And it's part of the process and, and then not feel ashamed about it. Absolutely. Let's talk about the, uh, the book itself. In part one, 
you talk about the causes of burnout for healthcare providers. Talk about some highlights there. You know, what what obviously we we can't go through everything. People should definitely get the book and read it. But um, you know, what what are the kind of highlights of of what's causing, in your opinion, this epidemic of burnout? Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't answer this question without going into the, the giant elephant in the room, which is moral injury versus burnout. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of discussion about that, and I, I'm acutely aware of it. And it's even hidden in the subtitle of the book, right? How burnout doctors can thrive in a broken medical system. So I, I fundamentally and firmly believe that there are systematic and systemic problems in medicine uh, that exist from a, a variety of sources, whether that's the electronic medical record system, insurance companies, bureaucrats, administrators, you name it. I mean, there's a lot of things that are really staking their claim on on medicine that strip doctors from certain things that then cause the individual phenomenon of burnout. So if that that system, which is you know a morally injurious system, if you will, causes moral injury, which is a systemic phenomenon, the individual phenomenon is burnout. And a lot of people will say, well, this is an either or sort of thing. And for me, that's dichotomous thinking. I, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. And there is a system that absolutely causes moral injury. That is the problem which causes the individual phenomenon of burnout in doctors. And so I'm in no way, shape or form uh, blaming doctors for this phenomenon that exists, but it also isn't helpful to label yourself as a victim. And I I talk a lot about that in the book and how that actually doesn't get you anywhere. And so when you, when you label this as an either or moral injury versus burnout phenomenon, you very quickly realize, Oh, I don't have any power in this. And so the things that those um, sources of moral injury do specifically is is a few different things, and and I talk about this in the book and the framework that that I lay out there. Um, but you know, if Frudenberg described the Frudenberger described the original uh, phenomenon of burnout, you know, as you know emotional exhaustion and depersonalization and lack of accomplishment, I would argue that those those things are mirrored on the opposite side of what it could be, which is described by Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan in the early you know early two thousands, and and that's autonomy belonging, which is the word I use, they use relatedness in the psychological literature and then competence. Uh, and so when you have a lack of autonomy, it's stripped by insurance companies, administrators, you don't feel in control of your personal life. You can't make the T-ball games or gymnastics practice. You know, you're stuck at work again late, or you can't control professional stuff like pre-authorizations and the whole host of other things, or you can't control the, the patient that shows up in front of you in anesthesia. Um, you know, that attacks your personal and professional autonomy. And without that, it leads to the emotional exhaustion, that apathy that we experience in medicine, which Frudenberger originally described. And then, you know, with the depersonalization piece, when you don't feel like you belong, which is a huge problem in medicine nowadays, like we don't feel like we're valued and we even have language to describe this, right? I'm a cog in the wheel. I'm just a number on a sheet, um, you know, and, and when we describe things that way, what we're tr- really trying to say is I don't feel valued as a member of the team, and so when you don't feel like you belong and you don't feel like you have autonomy, that's what causes the phenomenon of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization where we you know, don't treat other people, colleagues, staff, patients even, as you know, real human beings. And then finally, the, the lack of accomplishment, which I think you know, is not a huge part of this book, but you know, I do talk about imposter syndrome and, and, and where that kind of comes from. But to me, that's always the most fascinating because you, you have all of these doctors and, and this isn't a physician-specific phenomenon. Obviously, you know, it happens with CRNAs. It happens with nurses and other staff in the hospital. But you have all these highly successful people that feel like they haven't accomplished anything. I mean, that to me is mind-blowing how strong the imposter syndrome is, which happens in up to 60% of physicians. And, you know, that imposter syndrome comes from a lack of perceived competence. And so where Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan said, you need autonomy, belonging, and competence to love what you do in life to love your job, to feel fully engaged, to have work-life balance, all those buzzwords we constantly hear. If those are the three things we need, 
then burnout's on the other end of the spectrum when we don't have those three things. And those three things are typically taken by all of those sources that I mentioned before. Yeah, that's so important. And there you've covered, and you know, and for folks maybe not quite as familiar with the burnout literature, you know, the the kind of gold standard, right, for diagnosing burnout is the Maslow burnout inventory, which, as you said, has these three categories of depersonalization, lack of personal accomplishment, and um, emotional exhaustion. And so you've laid out each of those and kind of where they come from in the world we we live and practice in. I want to just go back a sec to the moral injury question. Can you give folks a definition of that? I mean, you know, I think it kind of rings true, but what do we, what do you mean when you say moral injury? Yeah. So moral injury is essentially the phenomenon that happens when you as a, you know, healthcare professional know what to do. You have the education, the training, the experience to know what to do to help somebody, but the system will not allow you to do it. And so you think of times where like, you have that one order you need to place in Epic in order to, you know, take care of this patient who's acutely ill and like, you just can't find the order or Epic won't order it or the pharmacy can't verify it or what have you. And so the, the thing that you know the patient needs and that if you had it, you'd be able to provide that care can't happen, right? Or when you have situations right now, like with staffing shortages where you know what's best for the patient is to get them out of the PACU, but you don't have nurses upstairs to take the patient. And so they're stuck in PACU overnight after they just had a cancer surgery, which is a monumental experience in their life. And they're recovering in the PACU without walls, you know, with a curtain in place uh, for 24 hours because we have nursing shortages because the system has abused them, right? So we know what to do. We know how to do it. We have the experience to do it right, but the system prevents us from doing it. So when we see harm caused to other people, despite that knowledge experience, you know, that we have, that is what causes moral injury. It's the, it's the injury that happens when you see something that you feel like is morally inappropriate happen to someone else and you feel powerless to change it. Yeah, I, that sounds exactly right to me. And, you know, I, I also think of the example of this is we, we are lucky in anesthesiology. We don't really deal with prior authorizations, really. But, you know, I my wife, who's a pediatrician, right? I mean, you could have a and any folks out there in primary care know this incredibly well. You could have a, a patient, you know, they need this medication, you know, it's the right thing for them and you can't get they can't afford it out of pocket and you can't no matter what you do, you can't get the insurance company to approve it. That that is such a, a intense source of moral injury. No question yeah, about it. Absolutely. So you talked a little about, you know, kind of autonomy, self-determination, and, and I think you in the book lay out this framework for self-determination almost as the opposite of burnout. So talk a little bit more about that. What is the, uh, I mean, I think it rings true, right? Uh, having autonomy, making our own decisions. And just earlier you said, you know, look, if you you want to be able to have that autonomy and controlling both your your kind of life as a whole, get to, get to your kid's t-ball game or, you know, be at your kid's, you know, graduation ceremony or whatever it is. And at work, you want to feel like you have some control over what you're doing and you're not just a cog in the wheel or a resource to be, you know, dealt out to where the resources are needed. So that rings true. And if that's, is that what you mean by self-determination is kind of being able to have some control over your life? So self-determination theory is composed of three things. So autonomy is one of them. Um, And then I break those three things down into kind of five. Um, So for autonomy, the three things are autonomy, relatedness, which I call belonging because relatedness doesn't really mean much to me as a non-psychology person. And then, and then competence. So autonomy, belonging, and competence are the ABCs of self-determination. So autonomy is, is broken down into personal and professional autonomy. Uh, belonging is broken up into being a valued team member who is attached to a deeper purpose, those two pieces. And then competence is the, the fifth piece. And that's perceived competence because as I mentioned before, 
you can be highly good at what you do, but if you think that you're not, that's definition of imposter syndrome, right? Feeling like you're a fraud, you're going to get caught. And so it's not really about how good you are clinically. It's about how good you think you are. Um, but what they basically argue is, and there's actually a fantastic book on this by Daniel H. Pink. Uh, it's called Drive, which, which from his standpoint, he's looking at intrinsic motivation. Like what internally drives people to do the right thing, to love what they do. And so, you know, if you, if you take these three things, the autonomy, belonging, and competence, those are the things that will make you love your job, feel fully engaged, be intrinsically motivated. And so hilariously and ironically, these are the things that administrators just love to measure. They really, really want from all of their employees. And yet they build these systems that do the opposite. And so, you know, as an individual medical professional, right, your job is to either create a system, fix a system that would allow you to then have that, which a lot of us at this point feel like is not really necessarily in our control. Um, I, I think that if we band together, we might be able to change some of those things. Uh, and that's part of this book. Uh, hopefully it'll you know, be a little bit of a, a war cry to people to you know, fix the system. That said, there are some things that you can do to take control back yourself. And so autonomy, as I mentioned, broken up into personal and professional autonomy. We talked about the T-ball games, talked about gymnastics practice. And, and for me, that's kind of what led to my burnout was two, three things. So three of the five. So basically personal and professional autonomy and then feeling valued, right? So I talk about the assistant program director position, uh, where I'm at wake, I had four other people get chosen, uh, despite expressing interest. I talk about that story in, in the book. Um, and those four other people are incredible human beings, but you know, there wasn't really an application process. There wasn't really an interview process. And so for me, like I just, you know, kind of felt devalued. Like I didn't even get a chance to have a say. Right. And, and looking back, like I kind of understand how that happened and how that actually ended up being a, a massive blessing in disguise. But at the time, all I felt was like, man, I've, I've checked all these boxes. I've done the randomized control trials. I've won the teaching awards. I'm really, really good clinically. Like I've done all of the things that I need to do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting promoted to associate professor in the fastest track that you can possibly be, like first year, you know, and like I'm doing all the things and I didn't even get an interview because there wasn't an interview. And so, you know, for me, like that devaluation uh, and then the personal and professional autonomy piece where I, I couldn't get home on time for my kids stuff. I didn't control like which shifts I did. I didn't control which OR assignments I got, which cases I got to do. Uh, and so for me, the personal and professional autonomy and then that feeling valued as a team member, those three out of the five things were completely missing. At least I was telling myself this were completely missing in my life. And that, that led to me having, you know, some emotional exhaustion and a little bit of that depersonalization with my colleagues at work. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think that if you have all five of those things, you can't help but love your job. And I think that literature really, really, really supports that too. Yeah. So of course, the question that begs is, how do we get those things right now? You know, you talk a little bit about uh, in the book uh, about the arrival fallacy and this kind of idea that we we are always or many of us have this idea that, well, we just have to get to the goal and we're always having this goal in the future. And then, you know, uh, that can be problematic. Talk a little bit about that. What is the arrival fallacy and how does that hurt us and, and how can we avoid it? Yeah, so that, that, that term was originally coined by uh, Tal Ben-Shahar out of Harvard, Harvard psychologist. And, um, and, and it's basically the idea that once we, you know, quote unquote, get there, that we'll be happy. And, and this is such a prevalent idea amongst physicians, right? Because we, you know, finish college and we're like, yeah, yeah, medical school is going to be great. Medical school is going to be really good. And we get to medical school and then like you're wearing the short white coat and no one has respect for you. And you're like, well, I mean, when I, when I get to residency, I'm going to be respected. I'm going to be a doctor. It's going to be so much better. And then you get to residency and it's better for a little while. And then you're completely burned out. And so you're like, oh, but when I make fellowship or I become an attending physician, earn that attending paycheck, that's going to be when it's better. And then it's better for a little bit for three or four or five, six months. 
And then you buy the house and the car and put your kids in private school and, and all the other things that follow along. And the reason that we do all those things is because we're searching for that hit of dopamine to basically make us feel better. Um, and as Gertrude Stein would say, right, there's no there there. Um, you know, so the idea that like once you get there, you'll be happy that, that that's not how life works. Life works by being in the moment and enjoying the journey and not the destination. And so for me, that was absolutely what I was doing. And I mentioned the assistant program director thing. That was the first time in my career I tried to do something professionally. I was burning out in the midst of this and the timing was hilarious. So, and, and I say hilarious, it wasn't funny at the time. It's funny to me now. Um, but at the time, like I was, I was, I had the smoldering Graves disease diagnosis in the background that I didn't yet know about. Um, the APD thing was happening and then I got burned out. And so I was basically dependent on these arrivals to keep me afloat. And so when the assistant program director position didn't work out, I found out very quickly, I I'd basically become an arrival fousy junkie. I was, I was waiting for that next arrival to keep me afloat. And when it didn't happen, I was drowning. And, uh, and so I think that's what a lot of people do. They like, you know, wait for that next accomplishment, the next award, that next big purchase to, to make them happy. And we all know, cause we've done it a thousand times in our life that three or six months later you adjust and, and you're not as happy, nearly as happy as you thought you would be the vast majority of the time. So that's called an arrival fallacy. Yeah, I, that, that brings true for me. And I'm sure it does for many other people. Um, it is, I agree with you. So important to not be always miserable, but knowing the next thing is going to make you happy or hoping it will, right. Is to, is to kind of figure out how to enjoy the path. And you know, even with something like residency, and, and now I've done this job of running a residency program long enough that I see some residents who very clearly are just trying to make it through because they think that once they get through, everything will be great. And others who, though there were, of course, I mean, I don't think anybody would say residency is the best time, uh, you know, in, in, at least not in every way, but because um, it's hard and you're working a ton and you don't have a lot of control. But But there are people who really thrive through residency, and I think it's because they they are focused on getting the most out of, out of what they're doing. And they're not focused on, you know, what's coming next. They're really, they know they're going to do it. And so rather than kind of focusing on what's hard about it, they're focused on what's good about it, you know? But the question I have for you is, you know, ha it, great. Some people just are that way naturally and they're incredibly either lucky or have worked hard to get there. But what about people who, who are listening to this and they say, yeah, yeah, that's me. I have the problem with the arrival fallacy. Okay, so how do I fix it, right? If people agree with you that this is a problem, but they don't know how to, how to do it differently. What do you tell them? Yeah. So, you know, I don't touch on this uh, a tremendous amount in the book as much as to point out what the problem is and then to give them, you know, potentially some exercises on how to, how to work through those things. But what I will say on this show is that I think far too many people in medicine, myself included for a really long time, have a fixed mindset about far too many things. And so we have a fixed mindset about how intelligent we are, as if that could never change. We have a fixed mindset on how our job is, and, and that could never change, you know, as well. Maybe our marriage, our relationships, we have a fixed mindset about, you know, that, that goal of getting somewhere, and then that's going to be what makes us happy. Instead of having a growth mindset on basically learning how to do things differently than we currently do and, and becoming better at them. And, and the classic example, I, I do give this in the book, is because my, my parents were this way, right? Like you, you, you were in school and, uh, you know, I was a smart kid. And so my parents were, I was like, oh yeah, you know what we really want is to apply yourself, but I was a smart kid. So apply yourself meant get all A's. Right. And so like, when I came home, like that was the expectation. And, and it wasn't like, you know, I get berated if I didn't get all A's, uh, but that was definitely the expectation based on my aptitude. 
And so it certainly wasn't on like, you know, how to become a good learner or a good reader or, you know, someone who struggles really hard at math when it's a challenging problem. And like those things that really do produce a growth mindset in us, it was on the, the product. Like they wanted me to get A's and they wanted me to get into medical school. And then they wanted me to get into residency and get a good job and become an attending. Um, you know, and, and so much of our lives, I think in medicine, you know, that, that is the, the mantra that we're taught. And what that does is it places our focus on the end product instead of on the process. And so what I encourage people to do is, first of all, to realize that. Like you are probably wired that way because you're a perfectionist physician. That's how most of us are. And, and we got groomed in this process of, you know, grades and USMLE scores and, you know, letters of recommendation and all the boxes you have to check to get to where we are. And if you start realizing like, hey, maybe the focus shouldn't be on that end product, but the process, Right. So, you know, writers are happiest when they're writing a book. I just wrote this book and easily, like it wasn't when it got published that I've been the happiest. Like I love putting on music in my ears, doing the research, reading other books, writing my own, right? Runners are happiest when they run. Singers are happiest when they sing. Like in anesthesia, I am happiest when I'm in the thick of it and hours are flying by as I'm taking care of really sick patients or doing a complicated block that I know like, you know, a fraction of anesthesiologists in this country can do. And, and like, that's when I'm, in my, in my happiest moment. And, and there's a word for that. It's called flow. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi described that in his book. And so when you start realizing like, oh, it's not about the end product. It's not about the result. It's about the process. It's about the journey. That in a lot of ways can start to reshape your mindset, which can be learned. It is a growth sort of thing. It is not a fixed thing. Like it's not like you either have it or you don't. This is an iterative process that you can work on. Now, naturally for me, that came from coaching. Right. Because I, having an objective third person outside of you point out when you've slipped back into that fixed mindset and saying, hey, what do you think about this? You're like, oh, yeah, I do think that. And you're like, OK, well, let's practice that. Right. And as you practice that iterative process, you start to fall back into this, you know, different kind of default mode, which is a growth mindset about focusing on the process, the moment being in the flow. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that you can learn that skill. You don't it's not that you either have it or you don't. Right. Okay, great. That's great. Now, let's talk about the um, issue of imposter syndrome. You brought this up. It, it's so ubiquitous, as you said. We see it in our trainees all the time. And of course, well beyond residency, we, we many of us, you know, as you said, I think you, you mentioned the, the number 60%, maybe more, you know, have this. So what do you recommend to folks who are sitting there again thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm always saying to myself, oh my, I better not ask that question because if I do, they're going to realize I don't know this thing I should know. And then they're going to think, what's, what is he or she doing here? They, they don't belong here. Right. Or we're always worried that we don't belong, um, that we don't, we haven't kind of earned our place. We're not competent enough to be, uh, where we are. Um, and that's such a source of, of stress and contributed to burnout. So, you know, how do we defeat imposter syndrome? Stay with us. We'll be right back with Jimmy's thoughts on how to defeat imposter syndrome. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we're back with how to defeat imposter syndrome. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So what I would say is a couple of things. <laughs> and I know there are a variety of people listening to the show in terms of trainees and you know, people in practice. 
So if you're in practice, you're an attending physician, you're a CRNA in practice, you have trainees that are working underneath you. Um, I would just, just tell you up front to normalize things. We all have this at one point in our career or another. And, and it's not like you defeat it and then it goes away. Like you have a bad patient outcome, you have, you're named in a medical malpractice suit, uh, you have that tough meeting with your chair or section head or whoever, and you know you you get missed on an APD position. That, that's certainly where you know it reared, it reared its head for me. Um, and so we all struggle with this during our careers. So twenty to sixty percent of people at any given time that are physicians in medicine are struggling with this. And so normalizing it and calling it what it is—that we have a perceived uh, lack of competence, right? Which is what that is. That's what imposter syndrome is. You think you're a fraud. You think you're going to get caught. Uh, I think that's a huge piece of it and not just normalizing it for other people. So Kristen Neff, you know, is a, you know, obviously the, the name in the self-compassion space. And I think self-compassion is the antidote in a lot of ways to Im- imposter syndrome or imposterism. Um, and, and the reason for that is because you recognize like, you're not supposed to get it right. Right. Like I tell people all the time, I tell my kids all the time, like I joke around with them literally almost every day when I make a mistake, which I do all the time. And I tell them like, Hey, you know, turns out your dad makes mistakes too. Right. And, and for them that normalizes the fact like people make mistakes, like we're not perfect. And this idea of perfectionism is, is, is what puts you in that imposters imposterism kind of space where you're like, Oh, I'm an imposter because you know, I'm not perfect. Having self-compassion is huge. So one, I would say normalize it, not just for other people, but normalize it for yourself. When you're having a hard time with this, like you're not broken, there's nothing wrong with you. Like you're, you're not all of a sudden a terrible medical professional. Like you're probably still exactly the same amazing medical professional you were before. Um, so normalizing that is, is huge. And then also being kind to yourself, right? So one way you can do this uh, in very concrete terms is if someone had the same exact situation that you're beating yourself up about, a medical malpractice review, like I mentioned, or a bad patient outcome, what would you say to someone else in that same exact situation? Like I, I'd encourage you to break out pen and paper and to actually write it down. If you don't have a coach, just write it down yourself. What would you say to someone else in the same situation? I bet it's probably not, you are a terrible doctor. You're a terrible CRNA. You're a terrible resident, right? Like, like that's, that's not what would come out of your mouth. You'd probably say, yeah, totally had that happen to me before, right? And so when you, you can be as kind to other people as you are to yourself, which is the definition of self-compassion, right? So compassion, two words, calm and patty, right? Patty means to suffer, calm means with, so to suffer with. So self-compassion means that you suffer with yourself. And if you can go through that and treat yourself the same way you treat someone else, in many ways, that really is the antidote to imposter syndrome because we all do have it. Uh, but treat yourself the same way you treat someone else. Set of the golden rule of treating you know, someone else the way you want to be treated. Treat yourself the way that you treat them. I love that. I've actually never heard that before as a, as a way to think about this, and I love it. Um, the idea of say, I'm going to say this now to people, <laughs> that you know, ask yourself if it was someone else who'd made that mistake or someone else who had that question or someone else who didn't know the answer to that. What would you say to them if they said they were feeling terrible about it? That's that's a great great way to do it. And then the other thing that I always tell you know tell my my trainees and my faculty is, you know, especially once you get to be faculty, once you are in an attending role or a senior CRNA role, whatever it is, you know, a leadership role, tell your stories about failure and mistakes because that's the it's so powerful for young, whether it's medical students, trainees, SRNAs, whatever it is, to hear. They're, you know, these impressive senior faculty say, listen, you know, here's where I screwed up. Here's the mistakes I made. Here's the mistakes I still make. And that, I think, helps normalize it too somewhat. Yeah, no, I agree. And in, in the, uh, for anybody who's interested, 
in the book, I, I tell about two different stories. One with the central line, the first time I ever put one in, and a patient had like an INR of like five and uh, accidentally pulled the whole thing out when uh, I went to dilate. Uh, and then uh, I had a, an arterial line fixation error on a patient that ended up dying in the operating room. Uh, and so I, I tell both those stories in the book for exactly the reason you're mentioning, uh, which is to normalize that, you know, we, we all have those things happen to us. Uh, and so, you know, it, it gets, it, it kind of rids this idea of perfectionism and the need for it in medicine. I, I agree with you. It's, it's huge. All right, so let's turn to autonomy. You talk about reclaiming autonomy and how important that is. And, and my question for you is how exactly can we do it? In the book, you give the example of Rosa Parks who you know refused to uh, move, right? Refused to give up her seat, to, refused to give in to this you know, absurd demand that was being made of her. So she took back her autonomy in that moment. So how do we do that? What's the equivalent for physicians? Is it you know saying, uh, you know, it's obviously you could take it to the exact literal kind of end and say, well, okay, refuse to do those prior authorizations, except that obviously then your patient's not going to get the medicine, right? So, you know, it's not quite that easy. So what is the answer? How do we as, as healthcare providers take back some autonomy? Yeah. So I think there's two different ways to attack this. One is on the systemic or systematic front. Um, you know, I really do think for far too long, we have viewed medicine very differently than we view other areas of life, right? So railroad workers, teachers, nurses, I mean, they all unionize for a reason, right? And we present in medicine that like we can't band together and demand change, like as if that's something that's just not on the table for us, which I think is sad, honestly. We all know these problems exist, right? And so, you know, leaving it up to lobbyists or political, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Polit- political companies, political, you know, uh, affiliations. I, you know, I think it's a little, I mean, it's one way to do it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not getting rid of advocacy. I think advocacy is a great thing. Um, but we can, as a group band together and fight against some of these systemic causes of moral injury. Um, and, and you also can reclaim some of your autonomy personally. Um, and so, you know, the two ways that I love teaching people to do that are through personal finance and mindset, right? So, uh, Rosa Parks is a, great example of that second piece, which is mindset, right? So uh, a lot of people think that, you know, the, the going story is that Rosa was just really tired after, you know, a hard day at work. And she just says like, no, I was just sick of tired of being sick and tired, basically, right? Like I just, I was done. I was fed up. She was on the, you know, these, these big positions in the, you know, what would later become, you know, basically the NAACP. And she, she said, no, like, I'm not, I'm not okay with this anymore. Like, I know what happened to these other people in the past and I'm done. Like, I'm done with this. And she stood up and she made an example of what is possible, right? And there were, you know, consequences for that. Um, you know, and there were consequences for other people that stood up too. Um, you know, so the mindset piece there to learn from that isn't to like, you know, just fight against the system at every step, you know, that you can, but to recognize that Rosa decided in that moment she wasn't the victim, right? She was going to take control of her situation. And that was very much a mindset thing. Um, and I give other examples of Nelson Mandela and Steve Jobs and of, you know, Ruben Hurricane Carter in the book and how they, they did the same thing. They refused to be a victim despite impossible situations. We're talking about getting thrown in jail for decades for something that they didn't do or they didn't do anything wrong. Right. And yet these people were like, no, like you can't, you can't take my mindset. You can't take my will. And so the other thing is, is, uh, personal finance, right? I love teaching people about personal finance for a reason. There is a lot of financial freedom, uh, an amount of financial freedom that will allow you to, to not only back away from medicine if you so choose. I love practicing anesthesia, so that's not whatever I'm, I'm going to ever use it for, I imagine. Um, but you can, with that financial freedom, say, hey, 
I'm going to speak up. I'm going to be Rosa Parks on this bus. And I'm going to tell you, Mr. or Miss Administrator, exactly what I think. Because if you fire me, it doesn't matter. I've got the financial freedom and the wherewithal to deal with whatever you lay on me. Right. Yeah. And so, so there, there is a lot of freedom in that. You know, obviously, that's, that's what I talk more about in the first book. Um, but this idea that like you're powerless, that you're weak, that you can't do anything, that you have to do exactly what the system says, like that, those are all thoughts, their ideas, their perspectives, their paradigms. They are not a fact. And far too many people take them as a fact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I guess one example would be when we all get sent the, you know, 40 hours of online modules every year um, that we're told you have to do, right? Um, we all just assume we have to do it. I certainly assume if I don't do it, I'll get fired or whatever. Now, one one option is to, as you said, develop enough financial independence that I'd, if they fire me, so what? Um, but do you recommend to people that they sort of take a stand on things like that and say, look, I'm, I, this is taking me away from my, uh, personal life. And it's also taking me away from my job, taking care of patients. Um, so I'm not going to do it and then see what happens. So I think there's two different things. If you have, if you have an administrator sitting in front of you, right, you got to use the tools of negotiation. I, I would never encourage somebody to say no to an administrator's face. I think there's more constructive ways to deal with that conversation. Um, like asking a question. How do you expect me to do these 40 online modules when I have these other 17 things that I have to do? Which of these 17 things would you like me to give up so that I can do these 40 online modules? Or how do you expect me to do these online modules with the time that I have, which can't be done at work? Are you going to pay me more to have time to do these online modules, right? And just point out the problem, right? And, and that administrator, and I talk about this in the book, like I don't think that administrators are, are just intrinsically evil people. I think that a lot of people in medicine think like, oh, they're just you know, out to make a buck and they don't really care. I don't think that's the problem at all. I think that they're so distanced from the people that they're leading that they have no idea what they're doing to the people that are in the trenches. And so I bet if you were face-to-face with an administrator having that conversation, they'd probably learn a thing or two from you on how they might want to change things. But yeah, passively, like, I mean, I I have online modules from, you know, 2018 that I still haven't done. Um, Now, if someone comes up to me and I get an email, usually once a year, uh, Brenda, who's one of the, the staff that works in our office, will be like, hey, Jimmy. Um, I need you to do the online module you haven't done yet. I'm like, hey, Brenda, I have 40 that I haven't done. Can you tell me which one it is? And she's like, you have 40? I'm like, I have 40. She's, I'll, she's like, okay. I was like, which one do I need? And she's like, this one. I was like, thanks, Brenda. Love you. And then I, I finished that one module that's quote unquote mandatory. And I don't do the other ones. You know why? Because if I need LVAD awareness or I need to have an online module on recognizing a stroke, I shouldn't be an anesthesiologist, Right. I've diagnosed people in the PACU with locked-in syndrome. If I'm taking an online module on, you know, how to diagnose a stroke, like, you're in trouble. I shouldn't have a job, right? And so, like, I, I'm not going to do that. Now, I'm not going to say that to someone's face if they, you know, I would be much more constructive and professional about it, uh, although they're probably listening to it right now because it's on a podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think it's ridiculous that physicians have to do that. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I personally take a stand on. When I tell anybody else to do that, no, I'm a coach. I don't tell anybody to do anything. You need to do what you think is right for you. Um, but, but I, I absolutely think you have the power within you to do that if that's what you so choose. Yeah. Great. You mentioned unionizing and I think this is such an interesting, um, idea, right? And, and I actually don't know the legal background of this. I certainly have heard over the years that, you know, physicians are legally not allowed to, to unionize. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, is that something you think is in our future, uh, trying as physicians to, to unionize? And if so, you know, do you think it might happen? You know, that's, that's a really interesting question. I, 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 like you, don't know the legal background of this. I've heard the same things that you have, that it's not legal for physicians because we provide patient care, uh, who would take care of the patients, uh, and that sort of argument. But um, 
I don't know if a union by that specific name will be what happens amongst physicians. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. But at some point, we're either going to band together and fix this or all of the best and brightest are no longer going to go into medicine. Because as, as tuition rates continue to go up by 6 to 8% per year, the average is well over $200,000 coming out of medical school, which compounds during training. So you're coming out with three, four, five dollars $500,000. Reimbursement rates are going down. Your autonomy is getting worse. You're not being, you not feel like you're valued on the team. Like all these things that I talked about earlier, they're getting worse. And people are eventually going to say, I'm not doing this anymore. And more and more doctors are realizing that, that there, there are places outside of medicine to work, right? You can go into big pharma, you can go into biotech, you can, you know, start a career in something non-medical, like, right? I mean, like I built a business that technically isn't medical and I could leave medicine from that. And, and you have these really highly intelligent, educated human beings that are the most hardworking people ever. They're going to figure out a way to get out of this. And so, you know, we're either going to have to band together and fix the system, which is what I hope happens because, you know, obviously there are patients out there that need our help. Um, but if that, if that doesn't happen, they'll just leave. That's what would end up happening in the end. Yeah. Well, it'll be very interesting to see. You talk in the book about a people first model and how that's really important that it takes long-term thinking, but that's what organizations, health systems, hospitals need to really do if we're going to get through this and if they're going to be profitable is have a people first model. So talk just a little bit about what that means and then how, you know, if who knows, maybe there's a CEO out there of a health system listening to this thinking, that sounds great. I want to do it. So how can they do it? Uh, So tell us that. Yeah. So I talk about the frameworks in the book, right? And I put them on either end of the spectrum. So self-determined physicians on one and then burned out physicians on the other. We talked about the three pieces that go into each of those models. So if you're a leader in medicine, and you're looking at any given position, excuse me, any specific decision. And you look through that framework. Does it help increase people's autonomy, increase their sense of belonging or their competence? If the answer is no, you simply don't do it, right? And if you're doing things that steal one of those three things, you should probably fix it, right? And if you find a solution that does all three of those things, you should probably do it. And so an example that I give all the time is, um, and I know that we discussed this via email, but, um, you know, and, and who knows, someone in my, my workplace may not, may not appreciate this at some point, but um, at our workplace currently, and I'm sure this is the same in a lot of institutions, the anesthesiologists and CRNAs are paid by the shift. Surgeons are paid by the RVU, so they're paid to operate as much as they can. They have RVU numbers they have to reach. And then the nurses and the operating are paid by the hour. And so we have a situation in which the incentives aren't aligned. And so... The anesthesia staff, us, you know, and the CRNAs, their pages do a good job. And however many cases you put in front of them, it is what it is. The surgeons are, you know, again, supposed to operate as much as possible. And the nurses are like, I get paid by the hour. I get paid the same exact number, regardless of how hard I work, regardless of what I get done. It's communism, right? Sounds great in theory, but it's terrible in practice because they get paid the same regardless of what they do. And so we're like, oh, I can't figure out why our start times are bad. I can't figure out why our turnover times are so slow. I can't figure out why everyone's so unhappy. It's like, well, it's because you added a six case in a room and the nurses were expecting to go home and now they can't. And so they're just going to drag their feet after that happens enough times and say, well, you know what? I really don't want to have butt pus put in my room at the end of the day. That's not really what I'm looking forward to. So, you know what? I'm going to drag my feet a little bit, whether it's, you know, subconsciously or consciously. So I don't have to have that done. Right. And that makes the surgeons mad because they want to operate more to get paid more. And the anesthesia staff are sitting there like, uh, you know, I mean, I'll do whatever you put in front of me right? Until the CRNAs get stuck late because they're come from a nursing paradigm where they're supposed to get off at a certain time. 
And so what administrators do in this situation is they basically make operating because that's what quote unquote makes money for the hospital. They put that profit over everything else. And so the anesthesia staff, the nurses, the techs, you know, everybody else in the operating room takes a beating on their personal autonomy because they can't get home on time because we just let, you know, let people operate whenever they want. And that sounds well and good. You're like, oh, we got to keep the lights on. Right. Until all the CRNAs are gone and the nurses are gone. You can't staff all of your operating rooms. You can't get people out of the PACU because the nurses upstairs don't feel like they belong either. They don't feel valued. And now you have a situation where like, you can't even run your operating room. So how much money do you make when you can't do any cases? Right. And so instead, if you put your people first, and you said, you know what, guys, we're going to put in place something called, and this is not new to med. This is maybe new to medicine, but it's not new to business. Right. Which is hilarious because that's what we do in medicine. We're like, Oh, we just like have to reinvent the wheels. Like you guys do realize like there's this whole thing like called business outside of medicine where they do these things. Right. And we can learn from them. So one of them is called a results only work environment or ROWE. So in these row environments, right. People know that when the work gets done, they go home. How hard do you think people would work in that system? Right. When they know that if they get their job done, they get to go home and make, you know, the T-ball game or the gymnastics practice or, you know, date night with their partner. I bet those people work hard, right? Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that, Jimmy. I, I totally agree. And, you know, we, um, in the immediate aftermath of the big initial COVID wave, we were trying to make up, right, all these cases that had been canceled, patients who needed surgery but had had it canceled. And so we added Saturday elective cases, uh, but, you know, they were, you, you weren't forced to do them, at least, uh, and I can't speak to the nursing side, but the surgeons obviously wanted to do them. And then the anesthesiologists were were able to sign up to do them. And obviously you got paid if you did them. And I remember I did some of these. And what was fascinating was it was exactly what you just described. The deal was you come in, there were no add-ons, you know, it wasn't like, oh, if you finish early, you get it, you're going to, you get rewarded with an extra case, right? It was like you did whatever it was, two cases, and then you're done. And I have never seen such efficiency. Everybody was aligned. The nurses, us, the surgeons, Everybody knew that the, as soon as the cases were done, you were done. And it was a totally different experience. So, I, so it can work. Yeah, and, and, and that's what happens when you give people their autonomy. You make them feel important and that they're a valued member of the team. And they're good at what they do. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and just to give people some backdrop on all of that, like this self-determination stuff has been studied in school, like in education. It's been studied in sports and parenting and medicine. Like this stuff's been around for over 20 years. And yet we're constantly trying to figure out how to recreate the wheel in medicine. Like if you build a system like that and you respect people's ABCs of their self-determination, they will intrinsically work hard for you. Yeah. So, you know, you also say in the book, we need to force our systems to be people focused, right? So obviously it'd be great if leaders hear this and or read your book and think, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all in, I'm going to do this. In the absence of that, what can we as the low end workers do to try to, you know, whether it's force or nudge or, you know, help our systems get get more people focused? Yeah. So, you know, this this goes back to that negotiation piece. Right. So, I mean, it, it is amazing what can be done when problems are pointed out, when there's a, a, a groundswell of support, when it is a unified message to people that are in leadership positions, because these people are leaders. They inherently want to do the right thing. Like I, I, again, I do not believe that our leaders in medicine, whether in our, you know, departmental levels or institutional levels uh, or even national levels, I don't, I don't think that they are out there to like get the medical professional on the front line. I, I know a lot of doctors that feel that way. I don't think that's the case. And I explained in the book why I don't think that's the case. So I think a lot of this is bringing things, you know, to the people that are in leadership's awareness 
uh, and then having conversations and then showing them what the numbers are. Like, this isn't just me bringing this to your attention. There's 60% of the department that also agrees with this, right? And then as that information builds, they're human. All of us have a deep need to belong. We are social creatures. We are meant to be a part of a pack. That includes the person leading your department or your institution. And so as they hear this message and as they realize how much support is behind it, it becomes harder and harder and harder to ignore. Uh, it, it just takes people actually communicating and then getting on the same page and expressing that concern. Uh, what happens most of the time is they have these one-off, one-on-one meetings and the, the message is kind of lost because there's you know several different messages being brought to the people in leadership. And they're like, well, you know, I can't make everyone happy so that it just don't do anything. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Jimmy, if, if you were going to just give two or three things that you would say to a, a provider who's listening to this, that you would say you would recommend they do right now that would have the biggest impact on their wellness, if they could do them you know, tomorrow, what would you say? What would you give them as, as of all the things we've talked about or maybe anything we, we haven't gotten to? What would you say to people if you can only do you know, one or two things in the next you know, really short term? What would you recommend? So, you know, the entire point of the book uh, in terms of helping people kind of sort these issues out on their own is, is helping them walk people from unintentional mindsets to intentional mindsets um, to, to relabel yourself from being the victim of a situation into the hero of the situation. And so the, the you know, being honest with you, the, the quickest way to do that is to get an outside perspective from someone else. Um, and, and this isn't anymore just an opinion. There's, there's literature on this that, you know, coaching or counseling or whoever you need to talk to, to have a third person objective party, listen to you and point out to you what you're saying and how that's impacting your life. Because one concrete thing people can go do right now is when they're upset about a situation uh, at home or at work, just take out pen and paper and write it all down and coaching. That's called a thought download. You write down everything that comes to your head. Don't filter any of it, right? Just write for five or 10 minutes. And then you go back and you circle the things that are facts. And I can tell you because after coaching a bunch of people, the vast majority of things that you write down are not facts. They are your perspective about the facts, right? And so, you know, I, you know, I talked through an example of a surgeon who had, you know, bad outcome, poor wound healing, and you know, she was having a really hard time beating herself up about it. But, you know, as we went back through the facts, like, it was a uh, cancer diagnosis. It was a head and neck surgery. Like they didn't have time to optimize the patient. Their A1C was like above 10. They smoked, right? She got a second opinion on the patient. The, the colleague came in and said, yeah, I think that what you're doing is appropriate. And then the pa patient had a bad outcome. And she made that mean like she was not a good surgeon. And that is not at all what was happening. And when I walked her back through like the A1C and the smoking and, you know, the two or three operations the patient had to have and the non-compliance and all that other stuff. And I said, you know, this is what the, the doctor did. She's like, oh yeah. I was like, well, what would you say to that doctor? She's like, that they did a really good job. I'm like, yeah, you did. Right. And so having somebody outside of you, honestly, is the quickest way to, to work through a lot of this stuff because you don't notice it in and of yourself. It's, it's the same phenomenon that you have. If anybody that's married or has children will understand this immediately, right? Like when you're talking to your kid and you're like trying to explain to them every day for like two months, this one thing over and over and over again. And then like some other person in their life comes along and says the same exact thing, a slightly different way. And all of a sudden it just clicks, right? And, and so we see this in everyday life that when people have an outside perspective that for whatever reason, that's the way our brains are wired, it really helps. But if you don't have that outside perspective, write it down. Do a thought download, separate your facts from your fiction, your facts from your story, and, and figure out exactly why you're upset. 
uh, and and if it's more because of the facts or if it's because of that narrative you have about them. Yeah, uh, that's so valuable. Um, and it's great to know that folks like you are, are, you know, out there doing this coaching. And I'm sure there's other people, too, that people can find or, you know, every every residency has access to um, to mental health care. You know, it's required by the ACGME. So whether it's accessing a counselor, you know, if you're if you're not a resident, whether it's accessing someone through, you know, whatever support options you have or looking for a coach or even just you know, doing some of this work with a colleague or friend, I think you're, you're exactly right. Keeping it internal is, is never good. Yep. Um, Jimmy, before we, uh, we wrap up here, anything we didn't cover that you think we, we should get to? No, the only thing I want to add to that is that there's actually a growing amount of literature on, on coaching specifically. And so, you know, go check it out. It, it does lead to decreased burnout, increased um, you know, quality of life and a whole host of other things. But no, I think we covered it pretty well, Jed. I, I think that, you know, if you want to learn the rest of it, you know, flush it out and see exactly the argument that I, that I outlined in the book, obviously the book's place to, best place to do that. Yeah, and I would agree. The book is great, and I do really recommend it to people, um, not just because Jimmy's here with me, but because I think it's really useful, um, and I think folks will get a lot out of it. Um, all right, well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. It goes without saying that we will recommend Jimmy's book, but Jimmy, I'm going to ask you, apart from your book, if you have something to recommend people check out. You know, I'm gonna recommend two things. So as you know, Jed, I'm at the beach this week. So I'm, I'm recording in a closet as we speak. Um, and uh, so my favorite beach novels are Harlan Coben novels. Have you read Harlan Coben stuff? No. Oh my gosh. So, so one of my best friends turned me on to this, uh, this author. So he's married to a physician. And so all of his books have a little bit of a medical kind of something or other in it. And they're always accurate, which I find really nice. Uh, but he, uh, he always has these stories where like there's this family story and like this, this other, you know, kind of crime thing going on. And like, you're not exactly sure how they're going to weave together, but by the end of the book, they always do. And you can't figure it out until it gets there. They're phenomenal books just for like, you know, just pleasure reading um, and uh, love his stuff. And so the second one I'd recommend is the coddling of American minds, which, you know, I, I <laughs> we were talking about this before. I think you and I have very similar thoughts on this. It's, it's uh, equally enlightening and depressing at the same time, but it's uh, it's fascinating how we how we got to this kind of polarized state in our country in terms of you know thinking other people that have different opinions than us they're they're bad people or they're evil or whatever um, and and this book outlines like the history of how we got to this state uh, and and for anybody who has a hard time with you know the echo chambers on social media or you know you, you just don't really like the hatred or the vitriol that's spewed to other you know on other people that are different than them. Uh, this book is really, really interesting in terms of how we got to to where we are. And so um, as a philosophy major, I, I, I loved it. I thought it was so, so interesting. Totally agree. I thought it was fascinating. I read it relatively recently and I recommend it to everybody um, for all the reasons you said. And and not just about that, but even just the the way we have come in our country and culture to treating kids uh, you know, from a very young age and then and then up through college, like they're so fragile, like we have to protect them from anything that might make them uncomfortable in any way. Right. And the the stories in the book about everything from a mom who, you know, let her kid, uh, you know, I think in New York City, like go one one subway stop on their own to their apartment and and people couldn't believe it. They, they called her like the worst mother in the world for letting her, you know, whatever was eight year old or whatever was do this. And, you know, yet when, when we, when you and I were kids, I mean, we went everywhere alone, right? I, I remember as oh, a yeah. year old, I would bike around the whole city, you know, uh, I, that I lived in. And I mean, it was just, and nobody said anything that that was, but now we have this idea that kids can't do anything. There's a town they talk about, right? Where I think they say that the, the um, police chief in this town recommends that 
children not be outside of their house unsupervised until they're older than 16, right? I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, we. I, I agree. And, and I think people don't give others enough credit for like how resilient and tough they are by nature. And, and honestly, even worse, that you're enabling them to not be tough or resilient by continually protecting them from, from these things that otherwise could make them that way. And, and yeah, I, 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 I found it so refreshing from a parenting perspective, from a political perspective, in terms of being able to discuss ideas with other people that don't believe the same things. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a really good read. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jimmy. And, and I will, in addition to seconding yours, I will uh, recommend a show that one of my residents, uh, told me was his favorite TV show of all time. And I had never even heard of it, but I checked it out. My, my wife and I are now firmly addicted to the, fir- to the show. We're in the kind of latter half of the first season. It's called Money Heist. And it was initially, uh, it's filmed, it's in, in Spanish. It's initially filmed in Spain, I believe. It's, you, you could watch it, obviously, either with subtitles or dubbed on Netflix or in the original Spanish if you want. Um, but it is really well done and really interesting. So uh, Money Heist, it's available on Netflix. I recommend that people check that out. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Chad, thanks so much for having me, man. It was a blast. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.